Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing I don't think that any of you could have missed the sea change that's happened over the last year or two around marriage equality, not to mention the graphic change in attitudes about homosexuality over the last 50 years. To call my attention to, and to add an exclamation point to these changes perhaps, three books showed up at my doorstep within a few months of each other, all memoirs by lesbians who've lived through this evolution in American society. Today and next week, we'll spend a couple hours learning about the authors and their experiences. We'll end next week with Margaret Sorrell, editor for and wife of Lynn Waddington, author of Staying True, Musings of an Odd Duck Quaker Lesbian Approaching Death. Later today, we'll start our interview with Annie Lanzolato about her book, L is for Lion, an Italian Bronx Butch Freedom Memoir. And today, we'll start with Hannah Wilson and Riding Fury Home. The issues and experiences these memoirs expose us to are varied and multidimensional. Cancer, family abuse, acceptance, goddess figurines, depression, suicide, and psychological pronouncements, and much more. And at the core of it all is these three brave women on a voyage of self-discovery and a safe and loving place in society. Before we get Hannah Wilson on the phone, let's listen to a song by one of my seminal influences, Holly Near. Back in 1978, she released an LP, Imagine My Surprise imagining her surprise to find that she loved another woman. We'll play just a bit from Holly's song on that album and on her Simply Love CD, Something About the Women. Then, Hannah Wilson, Riding Fury Home. Oh, there's something about the women There's something about the women Something about the Oh, we're 
Khanna, I'm so pleased that you could join me today for Spirit in Action. Mark, I'm delighted to be here. You're originally from the eastern side of the country. You went to college for a while in Iowa, and for many decades now, you've been out in the San Francisco area. Are you happy with your migration west? Is that the best weather in the world? I feel very blessed to live in the Bay Area, and and the weather is part of it. It's very moderate. You know, we don't have cold winters or hot summers. I think also, though, you know, the Bay Area for me, some of us who had hard childhoods had to get away from our parents quite far away in order to do some healing. But when I moved to the West Coast, it was really a kind of a vibrant time in the culture and uh, especially in the women's and gay liberation movement. So I found a home here in a community sense as well as a weather sense. When I was in San Francisco over 20 years ago, there was a guy who was doing accounting for the business I was dealing with there. He mentioned that he's gay, and he's originally from Nebraska, and so he migrated there because back home in Nebraska, being gay was not acceptable, right? So for him, it was a a place of refuge. Already by the 70s, when you moved there, I would say that a little bit of acceptance had crept into a couple places. How was it in San Francisco area at that time? Well, when I first moved, I wasn't out as gay. I was involved in the women's movement. But I moved into a collective household where on Friday nights, gay women's liberation met. And it was called gay women's liberation. And it was I was really terrified the first time I went to one of the meetings. And I think I had really... Even though I wasn't out yet myself as a lesbian, I had certainly internalized some of the homophobia of the culture, and I was even scared to go into a room with lesbians. But it really was a time when the movements were coming together in terms of women's issues and gay issues. And so when I walked into that room, there were 60 women, different ages, differently dressed, a lot with hippie regalia on of the time. And I felt very at home and welcomed. And so it was really a very different time in the culture, kind of the early beginnings of people coming out and coming together and forming community. That didn't happen in the 50s when my mother was a closeted lesbian in love with another married woman, and neither of them could find a way to live the life that really they would have wanted to have. And instead there was the psychiatric treatment for them of trying to make them adjust to their marriages to their husbands and my mother's heartbreak and attempting suicide as a result. So what a different time from the 50s to the 70s. The book you're referring to, Riding Fury Home, is quite an adventure story of living through those times. Seeing your mother and your father's relationship through your eyes is so powerful, a reminder of something that a lot of people I think would like to imagine didn't even exist. There's a a great song by Jeff Morgan called Homophobia. One of the verses, he says, First I learned it was evil, and then I got liberated and learned it was sick. Now I see things differently. But at that point in the 50s, there's probably a combination of evil and sick treatment there. As I read in the book, you didn't really understand what led to your mother's hospitalization, what the problem was, until so far along I think in essence, you ended up being angry at her for not being there for you, that, you know, your father had to do everything, right? Because your mother would flake out. Yeah, absolutely. When I was seven, my mother attempted suicide and was taken to a mental hospital where she was given the treatment of the time for suicidal depression was electroshock therapy, but it didn't help her. She was still severely depressed after 18 electroshocks, which really destroyed her a lot of her memories. 
and they sent her to another mental hospital, and she came home two years later. So for from when I was like seven to nine, nine and a half, I lived alone with my father, and we would go to see my mother on the weekends. Now, at that point, I had no knowledge of why was she in anguish. But as it turned out, and, and I want to talk about my father here too, she had been in love when I was like two to four years old with another married woman, and they were had a secret affair. And my mother was completely in love with her and wanted to take me and go and live a life with this woman. But you could see, really, in the 50s, no way to do that. Instead, her lover, Marion, went into a mental hospital first, came out, told my mother, I'm cured. Because in the 50s, being homosexual, as it was called, was seen as a mental illness. And so she said, we have to stay with our husbands and be faithful. So my mother went into a severe depression, started seeing a psychiatrist who was trying to get her to adjust to her marriage. But because he was trying to get her to not be her true self, she got more and more depressed rather than better and then attempted suicide. So when she was in the mental hospital, my father was brought in to meet with the psychiatrist at the mental hospital. This psychiatrist, his specialty was working with gay people to convert them to being happily heterosexual, which, as we know now over time, really does not work, and it is very damaging. But my father, of course, was very confused, and the psychiatrist said to him, listen, stay with your wife because I will help her adjust to being heterosexual. And my father said to me later when I was an adult, you know, I thought, well, if she had tuberculosis, I would stay with her while she was being treated for that disease. Later I thought, well, I don't think there's a cure for tuberculosis. As there wasn't, you know. But, of course, everyone was hurt by homophobia in this case. Of course, my father, it was very painful to be with someone who really couldn't fully love him, as everyone deserves to be loved. So it was a tragedy for everyone, you know, for my father to be with someone who really should have been with another woman. And for me as a child to grow up with a mother who was came home very heavily sedated on all kinds of psychiatric drugs. And my mother attempted suicide four times in my lifetime, and I, I took care of her because my father, when I was 10, left. He was a scientist, and he went to England for a year and left me with a mother who was heavily sedated and attempted suicide twice that year. So, yeah, I had a lot of anger, but that anger really couldn't be expressed because I knew my mother was fragile. And so, you know, when you're a child taking care of a parent, you're in the spine because even though I had a longing to be mothered, I felt I couldn't express it, but I'm sure it came out sideways in resentment at her. It's such a tempestuous story. I'm, I'm amazed that you held it together as well as you did. How many years of therapy have you done since then to try and deal with it? <laughs> oh, I had a long therapy as an adult, and I think one of the impacts of growing up, and this is true for many kids who grow up with any kind of impaired parent, you know, somebody who's alcoholic or mentally ill, I tolerated a lot of, even when I was with women, a lot of suffering in my relationships with people who really couldn't be there for me. And finally, one day, my therapist said to me, you know, Hannah, you seem to have just an incredible tolerance for suffering. You know, I was in my early 30s, and I thought, do I want to live this way? So luckily, I really got a lot of help to heal, and, and now with my wife for 29 years and in a very wonderful relationship. But um, yeah, it took a lot to really, you know, heal from some of the trauma that I experienced. But I have to say part of the healing was finding community in the women's movement, in the gay liberation movement, 
in finding words to express what it was on an individual level that we had suffered and that there was a collective understanding of this and also that we could be activists for our own healing and liberation as so much has changed in the culture. So many people are out now. And there's marriage equality. There's lots of forward momentum in gay rights. I'd like to explore just a little bit more of your healing, but I suppose we have to start first with your mother's healing. You talked about it. You know, she tries to commit suicide. She's facing severe loss that she won't be able to have the love of her life or won't be able to express that part of her. Is it your belief that she knew that she preferred women, or however you might want to say that, well before she married your dad? No, she didn't. And I think this is true of many gay folks because we have to suppress that because at least for me too when I was growing up, even though I don't remember much being said about gay people, you pick up that it's like a mo- you don't want to be that. You don't want to be a monster. You don't want to be a sick person. So my, what my mother has said, what said about that is in retrospect, looking back after she came out, she could see that she had crushes on girls, as I can see that, you know, as a youngster. But you wouldn't name it as, oh, I'm gay or I'm a lesbian or I'm homosexual. So when she married my father, she wasn't aware that she was a lesbian. She wasn't super enthusiastic about being married to him, but she, she knew this is what one does. But she wasn't yet aware of it. And, you know, one thing I want to say about her coming out I moved to San Francisco from the East Coast. I dropped out of college. I came out in San Francisco in 1970 when I was 19. And a month later, my mother came out as a lesbian back in New Jersey. And my formerly depressed mother came to an astonishing joy. She wrote me a letter and she said, I wake up, I look in the mirror, and I am so happy to be alive. And she moved into, from the suburbs of New Jersey into Greenwich Village in Manhattan, into a vibrant lesbian community in the 70s. Not only did she come out, but she became a gay affirmative psychotherapist because she didn't want other people to suffer as she had. So, you know, it's quite an arc that many of us have been through of healing and recovery from the trauma of homophobia. The title of the book, again, Riding Fury Home, you ask at the end of the book, you have some kind of like study questions. You say, you know, what do you think that title refers to or what are the various meanings of it? I imagine somewhere, I mean, the fury in your mom, the fury in you, when you wrote that title, what was specifically inspiring you? You know, it's sometimes you don't know fully what a book is about until you're done. So I had a heading for each chapter, and that was the title of one of the chapters, which has to do with a horse, which I might tell you a little bit about. But what I realized is that that riding fury home really is, the journey of working through the hurt and anger between my mother and me to come to forgiveness. Because as I said, you know, when you're a child with a fragile parent, there really was no room to express my need of her and my grief at losing her. My father told me that the doctor said she needed me and that she might get better if she could see me when I went to the mental hospital when I was seven. And all that you know, I had to discount all my own longing and need of her. And that really led to a deeply buried rage. So it's kind of coming to forgiveness between us and the journey to do that. There's actually a scene I thought I might read, which happens between us when I'm in my 20s. I'd love to hear that. Okay, well, let me just set it up very briefly. So actually, I was in my late 20s. My mother had really done a lot of her own good therapy, healing therapy by then, was 
much more solid and strong and able to withstand my anger. So we traveled to Israel. We spent a month together. We were just on vacation, and we were in Jerusalem, and we were nearing the end of our trip. So let me read this. One afternoon, my mother and I were alone in the Jerusalem house. Our trip was nearing its end, and we were both feeling melancholy. We were sitting on the couch in the living room, talking. My mother suggested we take turns doing peer counseling to help us get through our doldrums. My mother went first. Would you hold me, she asked. I feel like I need to be babied. I scooted closer and reached my arms around her. But as soon as I did, my stomach clenched with nausea. Rage nibbled at my throat. I just can't do it, I said, and dropped my arms. I, I couldn't keep from blurting out. I mothered you too many years when I shouldn't have had to. I was sweating, and my face felt hot. Oh. My mother pulled away from me, averting her eyes, her mouth pursed. I thought she was about to cry. Silence between us. When she looked up, there was sadness and something else in her eyes, a look of recognition. I'm glad you can say it. Of course, I understand, she said. I gazed at her, amazed. She did. She understood. My mother moved close, took me in her arms, and began recounting her memories of mothering me sitting in a rocking chair, singing me lullabies, building sandcastles together at low tide in Atlantic City. A painful pressure gathered in my throat. I remembered the sandcastles clearly. The other images of being rocked and sung to floated as sensations in my body. My mother began rocking me. The swaying loosed a sob in me that ripped itself upward from my chest. One sob followed another. We rocked and I wept. I felt the firm wrap of my mother's arms around my back and smelled the salt of my own tears on her neck where my head rested. But then my mother said, Your mother got sick. I felt very guilty that I couldn't take care of you. I, I wish I could make it up. I couldn't help it. I was very sick. I know, I know. I grew quiet. On this we agreed. Her grief and madness were not her fault. Her heart had been bludgeoned by a sexist society and homophobic psychiatry. This analysis relieved us. There was truth in it, although simplified. I could feel my mother's sorrow over our mutual loss. I felt suspended there in my mother's arms, something akin to forgiveness hovering between us. And listeners, that is only one of many passages in this book which will move you deeply. It's such a healthy look at the dysfunction of our society, which still isn't finished healing, of course, but we've made so much progress. I want to talk a bit about that progress, Hannah. In 2008, you finally had an opportunity over in California to marry Dana. Yes, there was a period in California before the voters voted in Proposition 8 in the 2008 election, which would bar same-sex marriages, which actually have now been undone by the Supreme Court, and marriages are now going forth in California. Anyway, in, in the summer of 2008, Dan and I had been together for 24 years, 
and we considered ourselves married. And, you know, I had made, we had made peace with being outsiders in the society. And we felt really great about our relationship. We were committed. We had no doubts that we were married in our mind's eye. So I wasn't expecting it to be much of a big thing other than we were going to get over a thousand, well, we weren't going to get a thousand federal benefits yet, but it would give us some civil rights to be married in California. But when we got married in San Francisco City Hall, and there were other same-sex couples being married there, it was so euphoric. We were standing next to um, a statue of Harvey Milk, the gay supervisor who was actually slain in that very building. I had no idea how joyful I would feel. There was something about being welcomed into a common humanity that this represented that really touched me. But I have to tell you something else. Before we actually had the marriage ceremony, I first had to go into the bathroom of San Francisco City Hall, and I cried. I was thinking of my mother, who was no longer alive, and I was wishing she could be there to share our joy and wondering, could she have even imagined this day, growing up and living through the 50s? Now, she also lived through the women's liberation movement, but even then, and the gay liberation movement, we had no idea we would come this far this fast. It is amazing, and it's it's so incredible to live right in the midst of this sea change when all of a sudden something that was unthinkable. If you think back in, I think, 1969, when the Stonewall, when that rioting or when that uprising came about, that for me is the first very visible sign that there's something that could be happening here. If you think of the distance between that and now when, I don't know, 12, 13 states, Washington, D.C., all have equal marriage for men and women, whatever their gender? It's pretty amazing. You know, I was thinking about the Stonewall in where what happened was for forever, police would come and harass gay men and lesbians in bars. It was one of the only places where gay people could find each other. But it was a very risky thing to do because you could get arrested and what they used to do was put people's pictures and names in the paper. You could lose your job. And, you know, in 1969, when the police came once again to beat and arrest gay people in a bar, they'd had enough, and they fought back. And it began kind of several days of street fighting and gay people going, you know, we're not going to tolerate this anymore. We don't want to be oppressed like this and beat up and lose our jobs and be discriminated against. And it was one of the turning points in history. And we've come so far, and, and now we see this massive change which is happening. I, I don't think there's any way to put this genie back in the box, and I'm happy about that. You know, you talk about your wedding back in 2008 with Dana. You know, Minnesota, right next door to me, just last year they defeated the anti-marriage equality referendum. And then this year it got legalized. And it's like, whoa, <laughs> you know, it's just so amazing that that transition happened. And I know that just a week, I think it was one week ago, that in the Twin Cities Quaker meeting, there are a number of couples that had been married under the care of that Quaker meeting How wonderful. who were not married legally. And so they made the decision to have kind of a joint certification, legal certification of the marriage by the meeting. So they had the five couples there celebrating the legalization of their marriage just last week. So it's, it's so heartwarming to see that. It's like, okay, your spiritual community has accepted you and is supporting you and all of that. And now the society as a whole ends up accepting you too. 
I think, you know, one of the things that happened over time is more and more people have come out and become visible. You know, many Americans now know someone who's gay, either in their family or in their workplace, and that really has shifted things. And it's fabulous, although I have to say, certainly we're not, we're not done. And in terms of religion, one of the things that's still astonishing to me happening is on the negative side is that there are still fundamentalist religious organizations that still try to convert gay people to straight. And every national mental health organization has concluded that the efforts to change sexual orientation are both ineffective and harmful, as, you know, the case of my mother shows. You know, one thing I wanted to say is last year, on this front, last year the Human Rights Campaign, which is, is a gay organization, surveyed more than 10,000 lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender youth, and they found the largest problem that they still faced was non-acceptance from their families. So some gay youth are still being dragged off by their families to therapists to try to convert them. Some of them are religious, some of them are just psychotherapists. But here in California, we've had a real victory on that front, too, Because I'm a psychotherapist, I'm part of an organization that co-sponsored a bill in California which passed, which makes it illegal to do conversion therapy, ex-gay therapy on minors. This is only within licensed psychotherapy, so religious counselors who aren't licensed can still do this. And it's actually under appeal right now, so it's on hold. But it's the beginning of laws really recognizing that this is such a harmful practice. Well, and what's the ex-gay organization, I think based in Colorado, that just closed down recently? I read a wonderful, again, such a sea change happening. One of the guys who was the leader in charge of this, he basically said, we were wrong. I'm sorry. We've screwed up. Incredible. Alan Chambers of Exodus. Exodus is the group. He met with a whole group of gay people who had been through Christian ex-gay therapy, you know, exodus, and had since come out but talked to him about the damage, the terrible damage that that can do, the depression and the suicidal feelings and the self-hate that it engenders. And he listened to them and not only apologized, but they shut down this organization. So it's, yes, change is happening. It's very heartening. So what is it about the change that led you to bring out your memoir? Again, it's Riding Fury Home by Hannah Wilson. And Hannah, in case you don't speak Hebrew, that a good transliteration sometimes is written C-H-A-N-A. You might be tempted to pronounce that Chana, but it's the Hebrew Ha. So Hannah Wilson. And actually, if people want to find the book and don't have to worry about spelling my name, they can just type in Writing Fury Home, and the website is also Writing Fury Home. That, that might be easier. But we do want them to learn Hebrew, don't we? <laughs> well, yeah. What was your question? I'm sorry. <laughs> so my question is, why now? What is there? Because, you know, along with my interview with you, there's two other people I'm having on memoirs of their whole experience. It seems to be not only the, the thing that's happening in all these various states across the U.S. and in other countries where marriage equality and I think homophobia, the, the armor of homophobia is being chinked away at. What led you to write the memoir now? You had all these wonderful experiences for years. I actually was writing it for many years, so it's kind of synchronous that mine came out at the same time as kind of the year of various lesbian memoirs. You know, for me, it was a very personal process, and it was very healing to do the writing. And it took me many, many years, 
But I, I think it's perhaps it's a time when the culture wants to know about the lives of people who, you know, are different than them. And maybe also it's us baby boomers reflecting back on our lives. I think there's something in, in there, too. And so you finally got this out after years and years of preparing it, of birthing it. What difference has it made to you now that you've got it out? I have gotten some beautiful letters from readers, men, women, straight, gay. And that's very touching. Letters about, you know, thank you for telling this story. A a man wrote me, he said, you might think it's strange because I'm heterosexual, I'm not Jewish, but I too grew up with family secrets. I too grew up with a mother, she had polio. She wasn't mentally impaired, she was physically impaired. But your story opened up feelings for me that I had to suppress as a child, and it was very healing. So I think, you know, getting this feedback from people is very, very touching for me. Now, I'm I'm assuming that maybe you just wrote this book because you needed to write it for yourself. The Spirit in Action program, you know, where you're speaking to me right now, I'm trying to find people who are trying to make a positive change in the world. You had your elements of it. One of the things that you did was working a number of years at KPFA, the kind of the home base for Pacifica Radio, which is one of the places that my programs are syndicated via. So were you intending to solve the world, or was it just that was a, you know, a safe protection from the rest of the damaging world? No, I mean, I have been an activist. My mother and I, starting in the mid-60s, my mother was a member of Women's Strike for Peace against the Vietnam War, and I joined her marching outside of Army induction centers. In fact, I would say that activism was very healing, too. When you grow up with stigma and shame, having a mentally ill parent was mine, and living in a small town where people would follow the ambulance down to our front door when my mother would attempt suicide, there's something about finding a home with other people taking action against the wrongs in the world and trying to make things right. So I have always been an activist, and I was at KPFA for 10 years, and I started in a group, a radio group, that was doing pioneering lesbian programming. We started in 1973. The amazing thing was, you know, there were so few voices that were out there in the ether for gay people. And I remember one story. We got a letter from a young teenage girl who would literally take her transistor radio into the closet. She lived with her parents. So when we were on the air, she would literally, in her bedroom, go into the closet, close the door with her transistor radio, and huddle with her ear against it. It was really something to be a voice and information for people who had so little access. I actually shifted after four years doing lesbian programming. I had a weekly world music program that featured women musicians and also did interviews with international activists, women's activists. And I did that for six years every week. I got to meet incredible women activists and artists and musicians. So for me, it was like letting their voices be out in the world. And so then I think to do my own writing and have have my voice. Well, actually, one thing I wanted to say was even though I was a feminist, I'd been on the radio for 10 years, I had a terrible writing block which I discovered when I decided to become a psychotherapist. I had to go back and finish a BA and then go to graduate school. I didn't know how I'd write academic papers. What I discovered was even though I'd helped others have their voice and I had a voice in radio, when I asked myself, what are you afraid of about writing? What leapt out of my mouth was that the truth might come out. 
And by that I meant all the secrets of my childhood, the shame and stigma of being a child with a mentally ill parent. So I actually deliberately, I took a creative writing class and I said, I want help writing the stories I fear will come out. I had a wonderful teacher. She would have us do free writes and I would write in class and the sweat would be pouring off my body. And I'll never forget the first time we had, then we had to read out loud what we'd written. So I wrote the first reading I had written about the time my mother jumped in the river in the middle of the night, in the middle of the winter, as one of her suicide attempts, and a neighbor brought her back in the middle of the night, and I had to deal with that. I read the story out loud. It was this potent silence. And I looked around, and I could see how moved my classmates were. And not only that, after it was done, they began sharing their own heart stories. And that helped me break through my writing block because I realized that these stories that we share with each other of trauma and recovery, they're universal. You know, they may be specific in the details, but people relate to them when you tell it from the heart. That really helped me begin to write creatively and to tell the story. Didn't you share those stories as part of Lesbian Air or Radio Free Lesbian when you were doing those shows? Well, you know, I, I interviewed my mother for a radio show in 1973, and it was amazing, but I was really focused on her story. I mean, I was a really good codependent, but to tell the story from my point of view, that was different. That was a real shift for me. When I started writing, I thought my mother was no longer alive, and I thought I was going to tell her story. So yes, I interviewed my mother, and she told her side of the story, but I think, you know, as a child who was a caretaker of a parent, it's another aspect of healing to come into your own and and remember and think about when no one has asked you what you're feeling as a child, how do you express that? It took a lot of work to go in and try to imagine what that child was feeling. I want to admit one little thing that was niggling with me. You know, you were siding with your father originally, and you know, you're caring for your mother, and your father, insanity of all insanities, goes off to England for a year. Wow, how to get over that kind of double abandonment from your mother and your father. But then when you connect with your mother, then you're pretty angry at your father. Finally, by the time that you and Dana are married, your father's there and he's being supportive. Okay, finally he comes around. But uh, there was a, a portion of the book where you're angry at your father. And because I'm a man, I was thinking, now wait a minute. He got shafted by your mother, too, you know. <laughs> I mean, she married him under as probably as truthful premises as she could, but he thought he was getting a wife, and here he got someone who couldn't love him. Oh, my God, that would be really hard, too. And of course, I realized by the end of the book, you reconciled that for me. But for a while, I was saying, Hannah, you are going to get this from his point of view, too, aren't you? <laughs> yes, and, you know, I think there was a way. Sometimes, you know, when you first come to a political understanding of sexism, it's oversimplified. And I lumped my father into the bad guys. And I was so lucky, after my, my mother died in 1990, before I started writing the book, my father had remarried, my parents uh, divorced when I was 12, 13, and, and my father had remarried. But he was willing, for the first time, to really talk to me about his side of the story. We spent many years going through both of our experiences And there was a real healing in that for us. But it rounded out the story for me. And I really did get his perspective. And and the tragedy for him in being with somebody who 
he told me, said to him, early on in the marriage, let's stay married but live as brother and sister. Now, who wants that kind of marriage? And I could really feel his own loneliness and grief and heartbreak. It made the story much more complex, and I had, over time, you know, really expanded my empathy for all of us. I understand you being irritated, you know, as a man reading it, because, you know, when you first come to consciousness about something and you're really angry, it's easy to just make men this simplistically the enemy. Yeah, that's exactly how, and some people are going to make the Republicans the enemy, or they're going to make the fundamentalist Christians the enemy, or the, the liberals who are breaking down all decency in society. They're going to, but one of the things I've learned in my life is, you know, we are all doing the best we can, and we do screw up. But here's here's one of my maxims now. That person screws up, and maybe I'll screw up too. And the fact that that person screws up does not excuse me from my screw-ups. We're all responsible for dealing with our screw-ups. So we don't just throw it away because someone else did something bad. And so your mother and your father, they both ended up hurting you and others. But I'm just glad you got to the point of healing because they took responsibility for their actions eventually. Yes, between my father and I, you know, what happened was when he was in England, I really got that he didn't want to know. This was when I was in fifth grade. I was 10, and he left for a year, and my mother was in very bad shape and attempted suicide twice. Well, I never told him that. I really got as a child that he did not want to know what was going on. And so to keep my connection with him, I just wrote him happy, fake letters. So part of the healing between us was to really have to tell him what it had been like. I showed him the chapters of the memoir, this is, you know, we're, we're both well into adulthood now, that talked about that. And he was able to say to me, yes, I sacrificed you. I was fleeing the marriage, and I would have thrown my own mother to the dogs. But Hannah, I feel so guilty about it, but I can't change the past. And what I said to him is, you know what, Dad, that we're able to speak of this now and really talk about it, and you tell me how badly you feel, we are changing the past. We're changing it right now by healing it. Well, it's a great story of healing, of transformation, a transformation in our society, which is so much in tune with the change that's happening on Broadly here now. I'm so thankful that you wrote the book, Riding Fury Home. Again, folks, we've been speaking with Hannah Wilson. Ridingfuryhome.com is the website. You can find it there or follow the link from Norton Spirit Radio. Hannah, again, thanks for sharing so deeply, for being part of healing both in your work as a therapist and in sharing your own personal story. It's been so great to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you so much, Mark. It was really a pleasure. That was Hannah Wilson, my first of three Spirit in Action guests, both today and next week, memoirs of their lives as people first, but also as lesbians. Hannah's book is Riding Fury Home on the web at ridingfuryhomebook.com. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and this is Spirit in Action, a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web, northernspiritradio.org, with eight-plus years of programs for listening and download, links to our guests, a place for posting comments, let us know that you're listening and what you think, and a place to make donations. We need your support 
and that's how we can thrive. And please, please, please remember to support your local community radio station with both your time and money. And thank them for bringing news and music to us that is nowhere else on the airwaves. As I said earlier, a sign, I think, of the sea change about public attitudes to homosexuality is the three memoirs I received over the past months by and about the life experience of three lesbians. We'll start our visit with the second author, Annie Raquel Lanzalato, about her book, L is for Lion, an Italian Bronx Butch Freedom Memoir, and finish it and my third interview next week. Right now, we'll get the Bronx and Annie Lanzalato on the phone. Annie, I'm excited to have you here for Spirit in Action. Hey, Mark. I'm so glad to talk with you. This is quite a memoir that you've put out. L is for Lion, an Italian Bronx Butch Freedom Memoir. Couldn't you put more words in there? <laughs> I probably could have, but they wouldn't have fit in one line across the width of the cover. So that was all I could fit in on one line. You know, I've included you in my interview right now because this memoir came out at a kind of propitious time. There seems to be a groundswell of things coming on for, you know, there's been progress over the past 40 years about gay rights, but it really seems to have taken off in the last six months, just incredible movement happening. What led you to make this memoir at this time? Well, there's certain times in an artist's life that I feel that you you know what you need to do before you move on and do anything else, you know, before you just even keep living. I, I call this, you know, like an imperative in your life. I even urge my students, you know, what's your imperative? What do you have to do? And this book just had to come out. I had to get it off my body into its own beautiful blue-covered body. That's it. I just had to finish right now. Speaking of the cover of the book, Ellis for Lion, did you know how to pop a wheelie really well? Oh, yeah. Are you kidding? I mean, on my block in the Bronx, being coordinated physically was the cachet. You know, that was the currency. That was it. So popping wheelies, doing jumps where you'd both wheels off the ground into the air, riding with no hands. And one kid on the block could stand up on the crossbar of his bike and actually surf it. I mean, that was pretty unbelievable. I mean, you know, kids are phenomenal with their bodies and the risks they take, right? Kids are really all little evil Knievels, you know. But, yeah, the photo on the cover is me popping a wheelie. I'm about eight years old on my favorite blue chopper bike. You know, what I love about it is you see this little girl, ponytail, you know, on her bike in shorts and a tank shirt, and her feet are rooted on the cement, you know, rooted on the ground. And that bike is up, and you just see this girl feels she belongs where she is, you know, and feels empowered where she is. You know, that's a rare moment. I don't know who snapped this photo. My mother said she did. You know, other people in the family said they did. I don't remember. I try to remember, you know, who was I looking at? And I could almost recall it, but then it could be anybody in the family snapping that photo. It's a quintessential moment. I'd like to feel that sense of place and empowerment and ownership wherever I live, but I don't. You know, it was a rare moment in life. Mm -hmm. That's also the same area where you used to play stickball, right? That's the sidewalk, yeah. You see it right there, and you, you see the street. That's the street where we play the stickball. In the photo, there's these metal garbage cans with the address of the house painted on it. The sewer cap was right off in the street, and the Johnny pump, or what you'd know as a fire hydrant, was between the garbage cans there. And that's where we played stoop ball on the sidewalk. You know, New York has these phenomenal stoops that the Dutch built when they built New York as a colony. 
my stoop had 11 steps. You know, it had crushed glass and mica in the mix of cement, so it was glittery and beautiful. And that's the street. It was a one-way street where we played stickball. Wasn't it kind of dangerous playing it there? I mean, how did you survive to adulthood? (laughs) You know, I gave a reading the other night in the South Bronx, and these two kids came up on stage, and I said to them, uh, you know, they were about eight. I said, do you play in the street? What are the rules? What are the games? And when they heard my part of the book about how to catch a fly ball in oncoming traffic, right away they said, that's like Trayvon Martin. So I said, you know, come on, tell the audience, what are you talking about? They said, well, there's no street justice anymore. And they, you know, they talked about Trayvon, who was a little older than them. And then they talked about how cars will run you over now. They don't necessarily will wait for you to make the catch. But in, in my day, in the, in the 60s and 70s in the Bronx, the cars knew how to play. They knew that that's where you had to play. There was nowhere else to play. I mean, that's where we played was the street. We, I didn't ever play anywhere else. You know, after you were seven years old, before seven, you were on the sidewalk. So the cars would wait till you made the catch, or if they didn't want to wait, then you'd tell them where to go to the side because you knew which way the wind was blowing. So you'd wave the car to the other side and you'd catch the ball. But you'd never miss a ball because the car was coming at you. But today, the cars will just mow you down. I mean, there's, there's no, they don't know how to play anymore. And I was telling these kids, don't you think we should teach that in driver's ed? You know, how to play, how to drive when there's a street game going on. <laughs> Because I think it's essential. I mean, kids still need the street. A lot of kids don't have parks and backyards and fields and pastures or whatever, right? Were you exceptional as a girl who was passionate about stickball? I don't remember any girls in the game on my block. That's all, you know, that's all I could say. And in the films that are out about New York street games, there's one called New York Street Games, directed by Matt Levy, and I'm interviewed in it. And, you know, mostly you see the men playing. So... On my block, I was the tomboy that played in the game. There were no other girls in the game on my block. And I don't know of any. So I'm not going to say, oh, I was exceptional. But in my experience, I don't know any other girls who really grew up in the game with the boys and so passionate about it. I'm sure they were out there. I just don't know them. A reminder to our listeners, we're speaking with Annie Lanzalato. Her website, AnnieLanzalato.com, that's two L's and two T's at the end there. You can follow the link from NorthernSpiritRadio.org. She's author of L is for Lion, an Italian Bronx Butch Freedom Memoir. Okay, let's talk about this freedom, or maybe the lack of it. You grew up as a Catholic Italian. You got accepted into the stickball games, evidently. You forced your way in somehow. <laughs> there, there was a number of ways that you could have been held down, but I think you didn't allow it. What did you do that was perhaps different, or why did you do something different than perhaps the average female? Well, I had this sense growing up that boys had freedom. And, you know, from a very early age, from two, three years old, I saw that the boys in the street could take off their shirts and run around. And the girls just seemed much more inhibited in that way. I never saw girls in the street without shirts on, running in traffic, zooming up and down the block. And to me, that looked like freedom. And then inside the house, you know, the men would be served and eat and then lay on the couch and, you know, take a nap. And the women were always, always working, always, always working, running around the table, setting the table, washing the dishes, cooking, their hands always in water, and the water was always boiling on the stove and... It just didn't look fun to me. You know, it didn't look like freedom. And so 
as a kid, I looked to the boys. I looked to the men. I tried to, I guess, identify with that freedom spirit that I saw men have. This translated as a white Italian kid, as an American. Um, when I was older and I, I went abroad for the first time in Egypt, I had never traveled before even in the United States, out of New York, barely. All I knew was I wanted to continue that sense of privilege and male privilege. So I cross-dressed as an Egyptian man. I went as Abdul. I had mustache. I had the kafir and the galabaya, the long dress and the turban. I learned how to basically make guttural sounds for yes and no and how to ask for coffee and tea with my already deep voice. So, ah, Iowa, you know, uh, Iowa means yes. And I'd walk around that way because as a woman, again, there wasn't freedom. You know, men would follow you in the streets of Cairo and um, do lewd acts. I just wasn't having it. It wasn't fun for me. You know, so I didn't feel freedom being a woman. Wasn't that potentially life-threatening for you? I mean, if you got discovered as a woman portraying a male, wasn't this perhaps death, whatever? Yes. I was blessedly in my 20s and very dumb and naive about the law, about Sharia, Islamic law, or about any international or Egyptian laws. I, I had no idea. All I knew was I wanted to walk around, be able to buy a, a little coffee and sit in the square and, you know, watch life go by and observe a new culture. Then I had cancer early on. At 18, I had my first cancer, which was Hodgkin's disease. And so, again, it was no sense of freedom in this body. You know, so I struggled with gender. Then I struggled with illness. And, uh, you know, it was a hard row just to feel some sense of freedom. You also were evidently some kind of orator as a youth, a Catholic youth organization. You're beating out the boys in the oratorical contest. I think that wasn't <laughs> supposed to happen, but, you know, you beat them at stickball and you beat them at oratory. What role did your Catholic upbringing have in either your freedom or lack of freedom? I really appreciate that question, Mark. I think we could talk about that a long time. To get to the heart of it, the nuns were huge in my upbringing, and I miss them in society today, and I don't see them too much anymore. So I had this one nun when I was about 12, and her name was Sister Raymond Aloysia. Now, I don't know where she was from. You know, she seemed like some tough old Sicilian, to be honest. She made champion orators out of 12 and 13-year-olds, and she handpicked us. And she picked me, and she just said, Lanzalotto, you have a big mouth, stay after school. And I was terrified because, you know, staying after school in any tradition is like going to jail. This was the toughest nun ever. But she, when I, when I came after school, scared, she handed me the Gettysburg Address, and she said, memorize it. And next Wednesday, you know, we're starting to practice. I want you for the speech team, what they call the forensic team. I didn't know if I wanted to do it, whatever. You know, my mother said, if you don't try, you'll never know. You know, she picked you. So I memorized it. And uh, Sister Raymond took me all over the next couple of years. We won all the kinds of contests. I won the state championship in New York. I memorized a bunch of speeches. She drilled every syllable out of my mouth. I mean, I think she bent my Bronx accent into a... Uh, you know, even the word America, you could say. We could go over the words beautiful in America. When I hear a politician saying America, 
in that Midwestern kind of way. You know, I feel Sister Raymond like drilling the uh, ah, ah, and there, you know, that middle syllable, you have to see the plains and the golden wheat and should have me extend my arm. And I see every presidential candidate doing the same thing. And the word beautiful, you know, we'd say beautiful, but you had to say beautiful. America is beautiful. You know? <laughs> and for my accent, that was hard stuff, you know. I mean, when I was in first grade, I remember taking one of those national tests. And this was the question that traumatized me. I'll never forget it. What runs with log? And the answer was C, dog. But now in the Bronx, dog rhymes with mog. It doesn't rhyme with log. But where you come from, <laughs> I don't know, where you come from, would that, be, would that make sense to you? Log and dog? Of course, yeah. yes. Okay. I, I can't make dog rhyme with log. Like, there's no way. <laughs> anyway, so Sister Raymond, though, she... And that was the heart of my Catholic upbringing. It was that discipline, the sense of punishment, like if you don't perform, you get punished. You know, that was deep stuff. But anyway, she did teach me and give me the experience of feeling a crowd and how to inspire a crowd. And that formed my whole career. Time's run out today, so we'll finish our visit with Annie Lanzolato next week. And then we'll learn about a third inspirational woman, Lynn Waddington, and her book, Staying True, Musings of an Odd Duck, Quaker Lesbian Approaching Death. Off we go again with Holly Near, Something About the Women. See you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.